So let me start out by first saying thank you guys so much for coming today and giving me an opportunity to, to talk with you about um, a pretty interesting subject. Um, and thank you for inviting me to, to come and, and actually get to present. Um, just a little bit about, about me so you understand where I kind of fit in to this kind of research. Um, I am in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences. I did a postdoc at um, DNR on the coast. Um, after that, I actually was here at the university in a joint position with DHEC, um, with the Office of Coastal and Resource, wait, Coastal Ocean and Resource Management. Um, and, and then I transitioned into a, a clinical <coughs> position from being research because that was a funded two-year funded project. And so um, I got my PhD from Texas A&M in the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries Management. So by training, I am um, an ecologist, a fisheries ecologist, fish ecologist. I dabble in studying some stuff with um, invertebrates as well, mainly ones that we, we like to eat um, or ones in the same family as ones we like to eat. But, um, but I'm, I am I'm an ecologist um, by training, by, by research, by passion. So, um, when I came up with this title um, for this talk, it sounded like a great idea. When I saw it in print on the flyer, I was like, ooh, it sounds a little bit different than I <laughs> meant it to when I see it like that. But um, I thought the first thing I should do is actually explain the whole faith-based aspect of my title and of this talk so that you will truly understand what I was trying to get at. Um, so Hillborn, um, who's a fishery scientist, he's from uh, University of Washington, right? He's University of Washington. Um, in 2006, he wrote this um, perspective piece um, in the in the um, magazine Fisheries called Faith-Based Fisheries. Um, and just a quote from that paper was, before we congratulate ourselves too much for the triumph of the scientific method, over belief, and in that he was referencing there had just been this um, court decision that we were not going to enforce the inclusion um, of um, creationism and, um, and other um, less scientific-based evolutionary principles into the science class in the public schools. So he was referring to this court decision um, when he said, before we congratulate ourselves for the triumph of the scientific method over belief, I suggest the fisheries community needs to look at itself and question whether there's not um, a, within our own field, a strong movement of faith-based acceptance of ideas and a search for data that support these ideas rather than critical and skeptical analysis of the evidence. And he was referring to um, faith-based, this faith-based fisheries movement that's emerged in the last decade um, that he emphasized that threatens um, the scientific process. And in particular, he was saying that it's the peer review and the publication process in top journals, not targeting individual scientists and their actual research. And so that's really important um, in, in what he was doing, and it's also important in what I'm trying to accomplish today in that I'm not attacking anybody's specific research. I'm just saying, um, let's, let's think about this and let's discuss. So he noted that Science and Nature, in particular, had published articles on fisheries 
and other topics. Um, and that I inserted in because um, I, come ac I came across actually some paper some papers in both science and nature about the topic that we're going to get to today and that relate to the topic today that were kind of similar um, to what he was citing about fisheries um, that were published not for their scientific merit but for their publicity value. And he emphasized that um, the peer review process was failing in, in, in this faith-based concern um, and it wasn't the authors of the papers um, and basically he said that um, these authors had potentially not obtained the essential feedback that is um, essential as part of the peer review process for publication. And part of the peer review process, for, for those of you guys that, that haven't published a lot, because um, some of my undergraduates are here too, um, is you know you, you write this paper based on research that you've done, you submit it to a journal, the journal editor usually assigns it to a um, a sub-editor, and then that editor identifies people that are considered experts in that particular field, that know that species, that know that data, that know that information, that they can critically read what you've written, you and your co-authors usually have written, and that they can criticize it, critique it, and provide you with valuable feedback that will improve it if it is publishable or that will let you know, wait a minute, this this is not, you're not, this isn't right. This doesn't make sense. And so when, when, when that process fails, there, there's problems. There's problems with the integrity of science. We're getting attacked all, all just left and right these days with all sorts of things, climate change, stuff like that. So whenever, whenever there's little holes in the process, then that makes it so that the science kind of breaks down, or not the science itself, but our, um, the way that, that we look as scientists to, to the public, um, it, it, it gets compromised. And so that's, that's a big issue. And that was kind of his emphasis, that, that it's very important to be critical, um, and, and the process, the peer review process, is, is utterly essential in providing good science. Okay, so. He cited some specific studies that were published in these journals. Um, one of the studies I'm going to show you some more about in a second, but a, um, a result of this study was the media took hold of it, and there was multiple um, very provocative pieces. This one was in the New York Times, but there were some other pieces um, in, in other media outlets that basically took this publication and said, that global fisheries are going to collapse, we're going to lose all of our fish by 2045, um, and we will not have fish in the future. Now, the paper that was in question was Myers and Worm, um, and the title of the paper was very provocative itself. This was published in Nature. The title was Rapid Worldwide Depletion of Predatory Fish Communities. Um, Concerning this paper, there was a lot of um, feedback. There was a lot of letters um, critiquing it. Um, the general consensus was that some fisheries definitely are depleted and are overfished. However, experts that were familiar with the data that was published here criticized highly the selective use of the data and the specific conclusions about the extent and the timing um, of these depleted um, stocks and, and the continuous depletion of stocks. So the problem, another big problem with this too, is that the, 
this, this paper, other papers that were mentioned by Hilborn um, were discredited, but they continue to be cited in the scientific literature as a viable paper, as a viable um, citation, um, and they continue to be cited by the media. And so that's a problem too, because once stuff gets, what, now with the internet especially, once stuff is out there and published, even if it does get discredited, unless a big issue is made over it and the journal retracts it or whatever, I mean, it's still out there and people are still citing it. Another um, example of this issue in fisheries management um, came up very, very recently. Um, how many of you guys have heard about shark finning? Okay, so one of the big, big statistics in shark finning is that over um, 100,000 million sharks um, are slaughtered each, the, each year. And, and it's inferred that it's shark finning is the majority of that driving that. Um, and and that, that is a phenomenal number. Um, and I don't disagree with that being a phenomenal number. How, however, <laughs> um, that is the number that is used again and again and again. The woman that did the research for that number um, just recently put out a piece where she talks about how her data is what's being cited continuously. She did her in 2000, um, she did her PhD on shark finning. She actually went in and interviewed people that were doing the shark finning. She went out on boats. She did, she worked within the community. It was, it was a great um, research project. Um, and she, what she actually found though was a range. She came up with a range and actually the uh, 100, uh, the 100,000 um, or the 100 million number was not in her range. That actually came from an, um, an, uh, an unsighted number that was in like National Geographic or something like that. Her number um, was a lot lower and she had a range. The, the, the top of the range is what she sees cited most or then that much greater number, which was the 100 million number. Um, and so she actually discussed this um, and talked about how perception and media, um, um, public perception and, and the media picking up on stuff and just kind of picking, cherry picking facts and cherry picking um, information. So an example that I came across very, very recently um, of this that kind of relates to the mercury and the seafood consumption um, issues that we're gonna talk about. Um, was this paper by Heights, um, which was Global Assessment of Organic Contaminants in Farmed Salmon, and that was published in Science. That paper reported mean PCB concentrations in both um, farmed salmon and in wild-caught salmon. Um, it was later um, discussed in Shaw et al. Um, that the documented concentrations were actually much lower, um, and that um, there was there were some there were some really valid questions about experimental design um, and how the fish were sampled and where they came from. Uh, um, most of the wild, most of the farm-raised salmon that we consume here in the United States actually comes um, from Chile, and and so that wasn't actually one of the main sources of the salmon that they um, that they investigated. So so anyway, this to me was was it just up a little bit of a red flag because it was a very um, provocative title that that really got the attention of the media 
um, in all sorts of um, outlets, including CNN. And, and so this made me think about the work that, that I'm doing currently um, with mercury in seafood and with seafood consumption safety. And, and so this is, this is how I merged faith-based fisheries with faith-based mercury and seafood research. Because there's, there's the potential there. I'm not saying that this is happening just yet, but there is the potential and, and, and it's a problem. So <laughs> the impetus <laughs> of this, poor John, <laughs> this is why you should have met with me. <laughs> a very brilliant, very brilliant and um, avid angler, brilliant scientist, avid angler and brilliant angler, um, said to me, we can't afford to eat enough swordfish to get mercury poisoning. I point this out for several reasons. Um, it's in collaboration with John, who's, who's here. John is a professor emeritus um, here at, at the University of South Carolina. He's a world-renowned fisheries expert. Um, he's done extensive research with, with tuna, all sorts of um, research relating to tuna. Um, a lot of it's been the life history stuff, but all sorts of other things. John is also an expert on South Carolina history, on coastal South Carolina. <laughs> John's like, go on, go on. Anyway, John knows a lot, is my point, and he's been doing this for a long time. So in, um, in discussions with, with John and with um, Megan Westmeyer at the um, South Carolina Aquarium, we, we started talking about this, this issue of mercury in seafood and the research pertaining to it. Um, and I actually had a, a master's student do um, her thesis based on an extensive review um, of the literature at that time. So for the past two and a half years, I've been heavily engaged in, in reading all about mercury and seafood. Um, and because of that, um, I, we have a big interest in, in talking about it. And, and, and also getting feedback from other people who come from a different background, a different um, academic background than I do, to, to, to kind of engage in discussion and understanding to see you know, what, we can, what we can teach each other, really. So the overall presentation objectives for me today were basically to get a bunch of intelligent, non-fisheries people together with me and with John. <laughs> and, um, to give you a, a little bit of a different view of the mercury seafood issue, um, and then to find out about any other studies that you guys might be aware of that I just haven't come across. I spend a couple days a week at least looking for new literature relating to this. There's a lot of research that's been done. It's a wide topic. Um, and every, every day I find a new study that I haven't seen before. And, and so, I know that there's stuff I've missed, and so if you guys know about stuff that I've missed, I would love to know about it. So first, I thought it would be very valuable to give you guys a little introduction to fisheries and to, to seafood management and regulation, because this relates. So we have two main seafood sources um, here in the United States. We get our seafood from either aquaculture or fisheries, and this includes both freshwater um, and marine seafood sources. So aquaculture, obviously farming of aquatic organisms in controlled environments, and then fisheries is the natural stocks, harvesting the natural stocks um, of fish that occur out in the ocean, and we've got some um, freshwater fisheries too that, that we at least import products from as well. Um, fisheries is really, pretty much the last remaining industrial level 
natural harvesting. We don't, we don't really go out and industrially harvest cattle that are naturally occurring in the environment. We raise them on farms. Um, so, so fisheries, is, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty different from, from all sorts of other um, food sources. And, and that's important. That's, that's very important. And it's also important that the way that we get our fisheries, our fishery products, or our seafood sources in general, is um, they're harvested by other people. Um, and so that'll come to play in a few minutes. Just a little bit about aquaculture. Um, aquaculture production, there's two really important components. Um, there's the, the biological component and then there's the, the system component. And so when you're trying to produce aquaculture, um, as far as the biological component, in order to promote, if you want to have a sustainable product at least, it's really important that, that, um, that the species that is being raised is natural to the region. And then also uh, determining if it's either a carnivore or an herbivore or an omnivore um, is, is really important too because that's what, that determines what you're going to feed it. And this, this relates to sustainability again. Um, species that we use in aquaculture that are carnivorous that need to be fed or tend to be fed, um, uh, forage fish that we go out and we trawl for and stuff like that, those are not, that's not going to be as a sustainable choice as um, a species that is an herbivore or can be fed on a more plant-based protein diet. Um, because if the point is sustainability and you want to raise a species um, that is not going to harm the environment, um, but then you're going out and you're fishing for a ton of forage fish and you're depleting fishery stocks, then you're kind of defeating the purpose. So the next thing is system, um, and, and you can have either closed or open systems. A closed system would be um, a pond or a tank that's, that's on land, um, as opposed to an open system, which would be um, something that's in the open ocean with, that's either caged or moored. Um, and this is important because um, in the United States, aquaculture and fisheries both are very heavily regulated. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But so as far as aquaculture goes, there's important inputs um, that need to be considered if, if, you're, if you want to talk about sustainable um, species. Uh, um, it's important to consider the chemicals that are going to be used, including antibiotics and pesticides, um, the feed that's going to be used. Is it plant-based or is it fish-based? And we just discussed that. Um, and then energy in a closed system, it's going to be more energy intensive. So that means that um, you're going to need power for filtration, um, for um, aeration, for all sorts of things. And so that kind of system might have a larger um, carbon footprint than, than something that's out in the, that's more of an open system, for example. Um, and, and, and this could also, when we talk about closed also, though, we, we could be talking about a pond that's pretty big and doesn't necessarily need filtration itself. Um, and so there's a, a range of, of energy consumption, and it's not just one is better than the other. Um, as far as the outputs of aquaculture go, um, concerns are always, is, is what we're doing going to alter um, habitat? So if we're doing it on land, um, any of the, the pollutants and, um, um, that we put out, are we going to 
process those and make sure that we're not causing eutrophication or, or other things. If we're doing it at sea, is it going to cause problems with, um, is putting a cage in a certain area, is that going to cause problems with all the poop and the extra feed that, don't get, that doesn't get eaten and stuff with the bottom? So um, altering habitat is a consideration. Um, escapes, this is why it's important to use native species to an area because if it's a non-native species um, and it gets out and it becomes an introduced species to the area and it can cause all sorts of ecological problems um, and impact, uh, impacts on biodiversity. Um, and then disease is a big issue too. One of, the, one of the problems that we've seen here in the United States with aquaculture and that um, other places have also experienced um, relates to uh, aquaculture species. And this is great with, with, with epi people here too because this is a concept that you guys have a much deeper understanding than I do. Um, so fish are usually spread out. When you put them in a pond, you're putting a lot of fish together in one place. And so the transference of disease is going to be a lot greater because you've got a lot more individuals. Um, and so disease transference from um, this closed population can affect your natural population if it gets out um, and impacts them. And we've seen evidence of this happen with parasitic isopods that get on the gills um, of salmon that have actually gotten out into the wild. Um, through escapes and also through the um, isopod larvae getting out and then the native um, salmon get those um, isopods and they affect reproduction, they affect all sorts of things. And so we've actually seen declines in native populations of salmon not because of fishing pressure but because of the impacts um, of isopods, parasitic isopods and stuff. And so escapes um, big, can be a big problem for several reasons and then, and then the waste in general. Um, is, can be a problem and so that's why it's important to get the proper permits and make sure you're being responsible. So fisheries is our other source. Um, fisheries management here in the United States is extremely regulated and it's a, it's a big time process. Um, there's a lot of um, federal funding that goes into um, making sure that we're, that we're being as responsible as possible. It's not a perfect system, just like with any system, but, um, but they're, compared to a lot of other places, we have, we have a really good fisheries management system um, because of the effort um, and, and, and the high quality of science that, that we demand for it. Um, the reason why we have such um, a heavily managed fishery system is, is because we want to prevent the effects of overfishing. And the effects of overfishing um, start out with a decline in your fish population, which leads to smaller harvests. Smaller harvests is going to lead to a decline in economy. It's going to um, also lead to the loss of fishing communities, fishing jobs, etc. And ultimately, that's going to also result in no fish um, for us to eat. Or shrimp. That's another, that's a good local example. Um, so, a little bit about how our fisheries are managed at the federal level. Um, the Magnuson Act of 1976 was our first major um, fisheries related uh, law. Um, it was enacted because um, in World War II there was increased technologies. People were able to use those technologies to start fishing a lot more efficiently and a lot more effectively and catch a lot more. 
And so we were seeing a major decline in the number of fish pounds that were caught um, because we were taking a lot more out than um, the fisheries could sustain. Um, and then there was also the foreign fleets issue. Um, we didn't want foreign fleets coming in and fishing in our waters and taking our fish. And so that was actually one of the big impetus um, for the Magnuson Act. Um, and then again, that decrease in total catch by U.S. fishermen, which was impacted by the fact that these other people were coming in and taking fish and there was less fish for us to catch. Um, the goals of the original Magnuson Act were to end that foreign fishing because, again, that was, that was one of the big, big, big issues. It created this exclusive economic zone that I have here um, depicted here for you. And basically, it industrialized our fishing fleet here in the U.S., which is big. Um, the main goal of the um, Fisheries Management Act was, um, not, was not conservation, and that's something that a lot of people don't realize. Um, it, it wasn't about conservation at all originally. Now, now it is, but it wasn't originally. Um, and then also just a neat little fact, um, most, most coastal states um, have a set um, area of state water, um, state waters, but, but Louisiana and Texas were, were very smart when, um, when we set up the EEZ and they actually retained um, I think most states have, is it three nautical miles out? But Texas and Louisiana both made it so that they had 10 nautical miles out. And so um, what that benefited for them was that a lot of the, um, um, the oil industry, petroleum industry, yeah, is now in their state waters as opposed to being in federal waters. And so it makes things easier for them with the petroleum industry. Um, so that's just kind of an interesting component of... of all sorts of things. Texas, Texas does a pretty good job, though, of protecting um, the beach rights for the public um, as far as like the ocean-facing beaches and stuff being public property. And there has to be, within every mile, there has to be um, a, a public access point and all this cool stuff like that. So some people give Texas a hard time, um, but Texas does some things really well. <laughs> So now we've got the fisheries, um, we've got the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Um, it was, the Magnuson Act was reauthorized in 1996. It became the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Um, and that's when it became the Sust Sustainable Fisheries Act. It was enacted because we had some major subsidies going on. Um, and that led to a, a 40 to 60% increase in fishing vessels and catch and in um, commercial um, fisheries employees. But, of the stocks that we had documented, 27 were considered overfished. Um, and then also we had that continually um, increasing technology still going on. We were still making major advances and we were still catching more fish and more fish because of that. Um, the goals were to prevent overfishing, to rebuild overfished stocks, and then to protect ecosystems at this point. And this is when we start seeing this reference to essential fish habitat and the protection and identification of essential fish habitat, which is important for fishery species so that their, um, so that their juveniles can grow to be big and then be fished. Um, it was reauthorized again in 2006. And I forgot to mention, I always like to mention when I talk about this, the Stevens of the Magnuson-Stevens. So, those of you that haven't taken my class, <laughs> who is Stevens? 
you guys remember. So acts are usually named after the people that support them in Congress. Stevens was big time Republican from Alaska. Tory, thanks. <laughs> Alaska is considered a very conservative state, but when it comes to fisheries management, um, Alaska is very protective of its fisheries and very proactive about sustainable about managing their fisheries sustainably because the industry there um, is really big and really important to Alaskans and in general they seem to have recognized early on that keeping the fish around is very important and so harvesting in a way that keeps the fish around is super super important and their their laws their support of of the Magnuson-Steven Act and, and and so on reflects that very well um, and, and Alaska is another one of those states that sometimes gets a bad rap, but doesn't necessarily need it all the time. Is, is, the, is the fact that their regulations um, are, are a bit more uh, stringent, maybe, regarding fisheries driven by cultural aspects of indigenous people in Alaska? In some ways, it could, I think you could say that. Um, yeah. But there are a lot of people in Alaska that aren't, aren't obviously indigenous, aren't Inuit. Um, but protecting the rights of the indigenous um, groups there has been really important, especially when it comes to being able to harvest whale, like bowhead whales and, and stuff like that. Because even though we've got a big time um, Marine Mammal Protection Act, we still allow a, a little bit of hunting for those native cultures. So to me, that's a really good example. But that, I guess that's a federal example too. But, but yes, I think that that combined with some other stuff um, is one of the reasons why Alaska is the way it is when it comes to fisheries management. Um, okay, so uh, the reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Act in 2006, it was, it was reauthorized or enacted because of, it, they wanted to cl close some loopholes from the 96 legislation language and because once an assessment was made, fisheries didn't scale back quite enough. Um, so the new goals were to give more power, and this is always exciting to a scientist. The new goals were to give more power to scientists' research and statistics, um, as opposed to more of the politics that were going on. Um, and then fisheries experiencing overfishing must set annual catch limits, which are referred to as ACLs, by 2010. And then all fisheries by this year, we're supposed to set annual catch limits. We can talk about if that's happened completely or not at the end, if you guys are interested. Um, and then another big thing that I like to emphasize anytime I talk about fisheries management in the US, um, and then some of, some of the work that, um, that other people are doing here at the university um, relating to sustainability, is emphasizing the importance of buying local products. In the United States, we, are, we regulate our fisheries pretty heavily. We've seen, um, John and I were talking about um, the overfishing with sharks. Our South Atlantic populations of sharks have actually um, rebounded, and it's actually one of the more, one of the better managed um, group. There's many, many species of sharks, so it's hard to overgeneralize, but we're doing good as far as managing our, our shark fisheries here um, in South Atlantic. Um, so anyway, buying locally, really important. 
for several reasons. You get fresher and higher quality product um, because of that traceability from the boat to the plate. Um, it's better for the environment. There's fewer food miles. Um, and then because we're in the U.S., if you buy locally, you're buying more sustainably managed products. And then it also supports our local economy. Um, local fishermen are doing the right thing. Um, that's a picture. It looks like trawling. Um, for example, our, our shrimp, South Carolina shrimpers, um, use all of, all of the required um, devices on their trawls to prevent um, catching turtles, to reduce bycatch. Um, they only trawl in certain areas that does not destroy essential habitat. It's a very sustainably managed um, fishery, and, and so it's important to support that. And then um, it also sustains, by buying, buying locally, you sustain your local fishing communities. Okay, so fisheries management. Um, fisheries management is not just about the resource. To really be effective, you have to manage the people. Um, and so managing the people means that you have to do extensive research um, and development on the human dimensions of fisheries management. And what does that mean? That means that there's a lot of us out there who know how to survey fishers and anglers to understand what's going on with the fisheries um, and, and to be able to better manage those resources. Lots of survey experience. Um, we have a lot of departments here in public health that also go out in the community and do surveys. Um, you guys do it a little bit differently than we do. We, we come from a different kind of background of training, um, but a lot of the same principles are utilized. And so um, it's, it's a good thing. We can learn from each other. Um, and then we also have an in-depth understanding of species-specific biology, and then also the, the community dynamics and community ecology um, of these environments, both in freshwater and um, in marine systems. And that's really important um, when we talk about mercury and other contaminants because food web and biomagnification is something that comes up again and again and again. So how does all this apply to methylmercury and seafood? Methylmercury and seafood has a public perception issue. There's been a lot of research on that, how um, when we put out these advisories, people don't get a true understanding of what advice is being given, um, and, and there's, there's an extreme reaction that might not be beneficial um, and might cause harm. Um, there seems to be a strong consensus currently on the benefits of seafood consumption. We know there's a lot of data out there. I'm going to show you some references in case you're curious. We know that, that a diet rich in seafood um, is, is, is good for you. It's good for you in many ways, not necessarily um, overexposure to contaminants, but we know that, that fish contain very important um, micronutrients, um, including the omega-3s, um, omega um, polyunsaturated um, fatty acids, we know that um, vitamin D is something that you can get from fish. We know that um, um, selenium is very important and it's something that, that a lot of people actually are deficient in if they don't consume um, fish in their diet. And, and so when we put out these negative messages about eating fish, and usually they're about eating specific fish, but the message that gets out often or that's picked up is, oh, I shouldn't eat fish at all. Um, 
makes it so that, that people avoid eating fish, and that means that they replace that in their diet with something else that isn't necessarily better for them and doesn't have those important micronutrients. Um, however, risk is still a majority. Um, so there, and, and, and in general, there is a little bit of a lack of consensus on the true risks of, of a diet rich in seafood. We know that methylmercury is a problem, but there is not a great, there's not a whole lot of consensus on the level of exposure, how much fish you need to eat, even what concentrations um, in hair or in blood. And there's also a lot of variability um, across um, populations between men and women as far as what you express in your hair and in your blood for the concentrations of mercury, methylmercury. So there's, there's lack of consensus on risk. Um, but risk is really what I've found um, in, in a current assessment that I'm doing of the literature and what I'm trying to make as quantitative as possible, um, is that there's a majority of emphasis in these in research papers that relates to quantifying um, mercury concentrations in um, seafood and in some of the biomonitoring stuff. Um, there's there's a, an overemphasis or an, more of an emphasis on risk and not very much information or emphasis on um, on benefits. And and again, that adds to that public perception issue because the media finds a paper that says, oh, we've found these really high concentrations of, um, of mercury in people who eat fish's hair. Um, this, is, this could be bad. And then they pick that up and that, that's what we hear about and we don't hear about the benefit stuff. And we also don't hear about if, there was, if that study actually went on to show a connection between those high levels of mercury um, and negative health outcomes. And so that's, that's something that we need to know, um, but, but that's not talked about nearly as much um, as just, oh, we did this study, we looked at concentrations of methylmercury in these species of fish, and these were the numbers. Um, so the majority, and, and I just said that, the majority of this research does not report health outcomes. It just alludes to potential negative ones um, being possible. So just some important points. Um, there was this great paper, Myers et al., um, that talked about nutrient methylmercury exposure from consuming fish. It was in the Journal of Nutrition. Um, and in that paper, he pointed out right up front, all fish do contain methylmercury. Um, but the amount of methylmercury is going to vary um, tremendously. And it's going to vary within a species, and it definitely varies among species. But within a species, there is a lot of variability. Um, and that's, that's important. Um, knowledge about species-specific concentration is not enough. We tend to we generalize what we do. In a lot of the papers that I've come across lately is we have a mean concentration or a median concentration for a certain species. We use that and we apply it um, to a modeling effort to determine risk. And we don't necessarily know if that mean concentration is representative of, of the actual fish of that species that people are eating. We just know that that's what the mean is, and, and there's a lot of variability around that mean usual, usually. So that, that's important. More precision is important. Um, and also, okay, so differences, there's regional differences within a species. There's age differences, which translates as size differences a lot. Um, 
um, in, in a species, but there's also seasonal differences that some people have documented, and, and that's really interesting as well, and that's, that's not something that comes out very often. Um, and then I quoted from Myers et al., and this is actually something that I want you guys to tell me if you found, other, found something otherwise, because after reading this paper, I went through the literature and I did all these different combinations um, of search, phraseology, and I still could not find something that refuted this, this quote. He said, in fact, there has never been even one child with prenatal mercury poisoning from consuming fish documented outside of Japan. So, uh, and I actually emailed Myers to see, because um, this was in 2007 that he said that, um, and I just haven't heard back from him yet to see if he actually, if he knew of anything, because I'm sure he got a lot of comment and stuff on this. Um, but he also pointed out in his um, assessment that there was this uh, survey that was done. It was a, it was a web-based survey um, in the US, and it demonstrated that two-thirds of the respondents to the survey believed that 1,000 to 100,000 US children are poisoned by mercury from eating fish every year. And so that's a public perception, as opposed to, in fact, there's never been one child that we've seen poisoned by eating fish. Um, and with methylmercury. Isn't that, I mean, I just, I thought that was really interesting. Okay, so mercury um, in high concentrations, um, it does not, has not been found. Um, so mercury in high concentrations are not found, that, that are not found in the U.S. can be dangerous. So yes, mercury in high concentrations can be dangerous, but we have not seen those kinds of concentrations as far as my investigation of the literature goes, and maybe you guys know differently, um, in the US. So in, in Iraq in the early 1970s, um, there was this horrible event that occurred that, that a lot of you know about, but some of you don't, so I'll give you a little details. Um, there was a, um, a, a rice that was treated with a fungicide that had mercury in it, um, and it, it was in high concentrations and it ended up poisoning a lot of people, there was, some, there was a lot of analysis of that that went on and, and the impacts um, of that exposure um, to mercury um, on all sorts of aspects of health, including um, fetal health um, and, and then the health of the children that were born that were um, exposed in utero to those high concentrations of mercury. And EPA used that Iraq um, study, and, or studies, there was, there was a lot that came out, um, to determine the lowest concentration of mercury in blood that could be associated with the possible health effects um, to be 5.8 parts per billion, that's concentration. And um, Minamata Bay um, and another place, um, another bay in, in Japan, that's where we actually do see um, children that were um, poisoned from children and, and adults um, both. Um, and then children that in the womb at the time of fish consumption. Um, Minamata Bay, there was a, um, a chemical company that dumped a lot of contaminants in the water um, and the fish became heavily concentrated with mercury um, during that, that time. Um, and the um, people that lived um, in Minamata Bay, um, their diet consisted a lot of fish and so they got exposed to really high concentrations of methylmercury um, by consuming fish that were contaminated. 
And then um, another big study was in the Faroe Islands where they have connected um, consumption of a seafood product, um, pilot whale meat, um, but not, the, not fish, um, although some people did eat fish in the Faroe Islands, but pilot whale meat, high concentration of methylmercury and some other contaminants. Um, and they did show that there was negative health outcomes related to um, the high concentrations of, of methylmercury in, in cord blood and, and other um, biomarkers. And then there's another seminal study that's often cited um, from New Zealand um, where the diet was both sharks, a lot of sharks, um, and bony fish. Sharks are different um, as far as mercury um, concentrations and then um, the, the micronutrients um, that, that are a benefit um, as opposed to the, the, some of the bony fish species. So these are, these are the main studies that people cite again and again and again in documenting um, methylmercury, bad, bad, bad. Okay, so I wanted to talk really quickly about tuna um, and tell you a little bit about tuna when in class um, I've been questioned about canned tuna and other tuna products um, and, and so I think it's important to get some information out there. Um, so canned tuna, the, the main species that go into canned tuna is albacore tuna and that's your, your, white, um, your white chunk tuna. And then um, skipjack and then some yellowfin but skipjack more than yellowfin um, is what you get when you're eating your light chunk tuna. Um, as far as um, the yellowfin, it's usually smaller individuals. Um, this is important because the canning industry, they actually prefer smaller fish because of the, proce the processing, the, the um, overhead costs involved in processing um, are pretty high when the fish get, are too big and so they keep the fish a certain size or within a certain size or below a certain size um, to be more cost effective. So why is that important? There's a size relationship that's been documented with concentrations of mercury um, in certain species of fish, um, tuna being one of them. And so smaller species and then smaller um, individuals within species um, of tuna are gonna have lower concentrations. And so that's just something that in general people aren't quite as aware of um, um, as, as maybe they should be because tuna is something that people consume a lot. Um, canned tuna, definitely a lot. There is some debate concerning tu tuna, um, the tuna status um, on being on the list, the EPA uh, don't eat list for pregnant women um, or women who might become pregnant um, and young children. It's actually not listed on the EPA website as one of the main fish to avoid. Sharks listed, shark is a lot of species. Um, swordfish, tilefish, tilefish is um, multiple species, but they don't make any de determination of which species actually. And then king mackerel, those are the big ones that are always on that list. Um, but I've got at the end, I've got a little, a new list to show you, which is really interesting. And then there's the, the issue of, of bluefin. Um, bluefin tuna gets to be very, very big. There was uh, an effort, was it last year or 2009, to list it um, through CITES. Um, as an endangered species so that it could not be traded internationally and, and it failed. Um, so bluefin tuna has been in, in, in the news a lot lately. Um, bluefin tuna is very expensive. I don't know how many of you guys like to eat it, but 
if you do eat it, it costs a lot of money to have a little bit of it. And it's kind of like swordfish. If you have a lot of money, <laughs> you can probably eat a lot of bluefin, but most of us can't afford to eat a lot of bluefin. Some recent studies that I've come across lately that were really, really interesting um, and definitely not perfect, but still really interesting that are worth looking at if you haven't already read them. Um, I just listed them here for you. Um, Hilbin um, did this great study on maternal seafood consumption in pregnancy and neurodevelopmental outcomes in childhood. They used, this was, this took place in, in Britain and um, it was published in The Lancet, and what they found was that um, women that consumed more than, let me, I actually pulled the paper out so that I wouldn't get the numbers incorrect. Maternal seafood consumption of less than 340 grams per week in pregnancy did not protect children from adverse outcomes. Rather, they recorded beneficial effects on child development with maternal seafood intakes of more than 340 grams per week. And um, EPA recommends a lot less than that um, on a weekly intake basis because of the methylmercury stuff. Um, so they said that this suggests that the advice of limited seafood consumption could actually be detrimental um, because women that ate more seafood um, had better health outcomes um, and the children had better health outcomes. These results show that the risk from the loss of nutrients were greater than the risk of harm from exposure to trace contaminants in 340 grams of seafood eaten weekly. So it's, a, it's kind of a provocative study, but on the other side, um, I would love to talk to anyone about it that has any thoughts um, and has any problems with it, because I, I want to hear about what you guys think. Um, there's another study, Cone et al. Well, it's actually a series of studies, Cone et al., Colleen et al., and then another Cone et al. They were published in 2005 um, in the American um, Journal of, what does the P stand for? Preventive Medicine. Thank you. <laughs> um, and they did this series of, quant of, quali of quantitative risk-benefit analysis for, um, for chat, for fetal development, um, negative um, uh, health outcomes in, in children and in, in um, newborn babies um, that might have been exposed in, in womb. Um, and they looked at the uh, risk-benefit analysis relating to cardiovascular health and then also relating to stroke. Um, and they're very interesting. There was actually a lot of back and forth after they published that from people that had comments um, and critiques of it. Um, and they seem to defend it pretty well in their responses. But again, that's another series of papers that I would love to talk with you know, any of you guys about that, that have read them that, are, that think a little bit differently about them. Um, and then there's this recent study from 2010, um, Bloomingdale. It was a qualitative study of fish consumption during pregnancy, and that was in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And they, they did um, focus groups with, um, with several pregnant women. I think it was a small sample size. It was like 22 pregnant women, I think. And they basically found out that if women were advised by their doctors how to, what seafood were appropriate to eat and stuff, um, that they would go back to eating seafood after being advised not to um, in the media. And so that was a really interesting study too. 
Then there's that last one, the Kenny et al. Um, that I just found um, today, and it talks about the relation um, of schizophrenia prevalence to latitude, climate, fish consumption, and, and some other parameters. Um, that was pretty interesting to read. And some other things to think about. So inconclusive evidence regarding mercury toxicity in fish, but still we're extremely precautionary in our advisories. Um, how does this compare to other sources of potential contaminant exposure um, as far as pesticide regulation, for example, microbe, um, microbes and agricultural food regulation? Um, we've had a lot of recent outbreaks of, of bacterial contamination and all sorts of um, um, vegetable products, for example. Um, and then one last example that I wanted to give you um, was about tilefish. This is something that I've been scaling as many databases as I could um, for additional information because tilefish have been listed as one of the must avoid species, um, or not species, but fish, and it's just tilefish. It doesn't actually say what species. Um, Tilefish are in one family, Malacanthidae, um, of fish. Many of the species of tilefish are consumed um, worldwide. Um, this includes ocean whitefish, which a lot of you have probably eaten, have heard of, have eaten. Um, but it's called ocean whitefish, so when they advise tilefish, people don't think it, it means ocean whitefish, which it shouldn't because they don't have a high mercury concentration, but they are a tilefish species. Um, as far as the tilefish, Mercury concentration, um, the data that is used to support listing them as a species of concern and a do not species for pregnant, do not eat species for pregnant women um, and young children was from a, a small amount of fish. Um, it was less than 70 individuals from one population sampled over one period of time from the Gulf of Mexico. Um, the problem with that is, is that, well, first of all, it's the golden tilefish, um, which is that species. It's important to know what species that the, ad, that the advisory is actually based on, and it's the Gulf of Mexico, one population in the Gulf of Mexico that was sampled at one time um, in the 70s that the data comes from. And the, the fishery for tilefish is actually a lot bigger in the Atlantic, um, in the north, of, well, the northern part of the Atlantic in the U.S. We do have some in the southern part of the Atlantic. Um, that's where the majority of, of tilefish products come from in the U.S. Um, the fishery in the Gulf of Mexico is a lot smaller. But when they put this advisory in, um, into action um, based on this data from the Gulf of Mexico, this heavily impacted communities, people whose livelihood depended on this fishery. And so, yes, we should be precautionary, but we should have good data too at the same time. So um, another thing about tilefish that, that makes me want to know more about the concentration of mercury in tilefish in general is that their diet consists mainly of benthic invertebrates. Benthic invertebrate um, consumers don't fit the, ex the expected model. The species that we see really high concentrations of mercury in tend to be either really long-lived species that eat fish um, or piscivorous um, fish that eat other fish, and so they're high in the trophic food web. Um, so, and also, again, so the Atlantic fishery was impacted by the advisory, but I haven't found any published studies on additional data for concentrations of mercury in tilefish. It's only that data from the 70s from the Gulf of Mexico. So if anybody knows of anything else, please let me know, because I'm trying to find it if it's there. 
And lastly, I just wanted to show you, this is um, um, Santeri um, came up. Santeri is very pro-benefits of fish, um, but, but he did come up with this wallet card um, that advises pregnant women and children on fish consumption. Um, and, and this is what it, what it lists as far as um, if you want to be super safe and the best cho choices that are lowest in mercury and the highest in healthy fats are going to be your herring, um, the mackerel that are not king mackerel, um, and Spanish mackerel, so that's Atlantic mackerel, jack mackerel, and chub mackerel. And so, again, species matters. Um, a lot of people think all mackerel are bad to eat, and, and, and they're not. Not all mackerel have high concentrations of mercury. Um, Rambo trout, salmon, what else do we have? Sardines, um, whitefish. <laughs> what is whitefish? <laughs> um, and then we've got the lowest mercury, the moderate mercury, and then the high mercury um, that has the little red. Just don't eat if you're worried about it. Um, and this actually includes orange roughy, um, which is a really long-lived species, um, and then fresh and frozen tuna. Um, and then it specifies tallfish, Gulf of Mexico. But it's a really good card. So anyway, that's, that's really it. Thanks again. Um, please let me know if you have any questions. If you want any of my references, I'll be happy to give them to you. And if you have any ideas or comments, I would love to hear them.